Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Welcome back. It has been an interesting time since our last episode. Uh, lots of ha- lots of things have happened, including the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the first presidential debate. Um, <laughs> every week has just been more insane than the next, and we were only five or so weeks away from the election. So things are just going to get crazier. We are now in October territory. Usually it's the famous October surprises that we worry about during these elections. And those types of bombshell surprises come just about once a week with this administration and this campaign. It's it's nonstop. So um, this episode of the podcast, I have a great guest. He's written an amazing book that's really timely. Um, I've been working on getting him on for a couple of weeks and the timing couldn't have been better. David Scheimer, he's a historian and he wrote a book called Rigged, America, Russia and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. Hello, perfect timing because we're dealing with the election security issue, election integrity and Trump's really irresponsible language on this. So stay tuned for my interview with David Scheimer. You're going to learn some things that will alarm you, but also it should wake you up and make sure that you're out there going out there to vote and getting others with you and paying attention to what's happening. So stay tuned for my interview with David Scheimer. But first, before I get into my thoughts on things that have been going on, I want to um, talk about my new sponsor, On Duty USA. Uh, On Duty USA is a veteran-owned, veteran-farmed, and veteran-operated health and wellness company. If you have trouble with anxiety, and who doesn't, because I know I have agita in these final weeks of the election, I talk about it all the time, insomnia, aches and pains, these are ailments that On Duty's Kentucky-grown products can help you with. It's all you need. On Duty offers a line of premium CBD products from traditional sublingual oils, gummy bears, beeswax topicals, and much more. Be sure to shop and save 15% on your order when you visit ondutyusa.com and sign up for their monthly subscription at checkout. But you can also subscribe to the On Duty monthly report where they share the latest in veteran news and offer exclusive insider discounts. However, for my listeners, On Duty has a special offer. It's a one-time 20% off discount on your first order. Just simply type Tara in the promo box. That's Tara in the promo box for ondutyusa.com. That's ondutyusa.com for premium CBD products. I have to say, and I've said this last time, I'm so thrilled to have them as an advertiser for the podcast. Veteran owned, veteran farmed. I'm happy to support the small business and the products are amazing. I use them, my husband uses them, my mom uses them, and she even uses them for her dog who gets seizures. It works miracles. So I appreciate the, their their advertising on my podcast and I'm happy to support them. So check out ondutyusa.com. Okay, so let me get into this, the debate. That's what I'm gonna talk about first. Well, no, actually, let me talk about RBG first real quick. Uh, since that happened uh, a little while ago, and um, it was in between the last podcast. For years as a conservative, obviously, I was on the opposite side of the judicial spectrum from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I have to admit that I did not have a full appreciation for her contribution to women's rights 
and civil liberties in this country. Um, you know, when you're in that bubble, sometimes you're looking at things from one perspective and you don't see the other. And the Trump era has really allowed me to kind of look outside of that that conservative bubble that I'd been in for so long. And I've become a lot more open to uh, some some people and, and things that were demonized before. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of them. I have to admit that I really did not appreciate what a titan she was for women's rights and gender equality. And after her passing, you know, I... Um, I finally watched the RBG documentary. I watched the movie, the Hollywood movie on the basis of sex uh, based on her her life and one of her landmark cases. And, you know, it, she was a remarkable woman. And regardless of whether I agreed with her judicial philosophy and her interpretations on the, con- uh, on the con- Constitution and other things, it doesn't matter. You know, that's okay. She was still a genius. She was a badass. Um, tough, tough as nails, smart. And um, she really, really laid the, the, the foundation and the pathway for millions and millions of women in this country. And she deserves t- to be lionized and she deserves to be um, respected and honored. And I was glad to see that she was, she was given those honors properly in the Supreme Court. So um, rest in peace, RBG. And uh, this this Supreme Court fight is going to be ugly. I when she when I heard of her passing, I was like, oh shit! You know, from a political perspective, it was an earthquake, an absolute earthquake. And I knew that this was you know the Republicans were going to be complete hypocrites after what they did to Merrick Garland in 2016. It wasn't right. I mean, I defended it at the time. In hindsight, it wasn't the right thing to do, um, and I'm not afraid to admit that. So here we are. And unfortunately, the Republicans can do this. They're in power. There's nothing in the Constitution to stop them. It's just been political taboo to nominate a Supreme Court justice so close to an election because it's seen as a political pick. And we're trying not to have the Supreme Court seem political. Well, that's out the window. Now, in fairness to my Democratic friends, Harry Reid opened the door for this. Because back when Republicans, some would argue, were being obstructionist and they were not in the Senate, they were not um, approving Barack Obama's federal judiciary picks. So Harry Reid, when he was Senate Majority Leader before Mitch McConnell, he made a decision to change the Senate rules so that you no longer needed a 60 60 vote filibuster proof majority to nominate and pass uh, judges. So the Republicans, when they took over, and at the time, Republicans warned, do not do this. If you do this when you're not in power anymore, that means we're going to do this. So do you want to open this Pandora's box? Democrats said, we don't care. We need our judges. Well, now those chickens are coming home to roost because when Republicans took back control of the Senate, guess what they did? In 2017, they changed the rules so that you didn't need 60 votes to to confirm a Supreme Court justice. See, before it was just the federal judges. Now, that same thing applies. A filibuster, no longer do you need a filibuster-proof majority, which is 60 votes, to get a Supreme Court nomination. So it can be passed on party lines. 
that's no good. That's how Kavanaugh got through. Um, you know, there was really no controversy over Gorsuch. But uh, here we are now with Amy Coney Barrett, who is controversial for people on the left. Um, personally, for me, I am not as horrified by her judicial, um, her judicial philosophy. She's more in the line of Scalia, who I agreed with. Uh, I think some of the attacks on her about, you know, the handmaid's tale and she's some crazy Christian woman that's going to overturn Roe v. Wade and we're going to turn into Gilead that I, I think that's overblown, to be honest. Um, not saying that those issues aren't important, not saying that, you know, the upcoming health care case, the Obamacare case that's coming before the Supreme Court isn't important. They are. I just don't think that we should be demonizing her because she's she is a person of faith. Yes, she's got seven children. She's got two adopted children, two black adopted kids. Good for her. Um, and I have no reason to think that she would not be a fair judge. She is qualified to be on the Supreme Court. We may not agree with her policy, but every good judge does not allow those personal feelings. They're not supposed to let them through. And um, we'll see. But she shouldn't be. My concern is that the institution of the Supreme Court is what's going to be hurt. And I just don't like the idea that then Democrats might retaliate and say, well, we'll pack the court because it's not constitutionally mandated that the Supreme Court only be nine justices. It's been that way since the 1800s, but Congress can change that with a law. They can just pass a statute and say, yeah, we want 15 judges on the Supreme Court. So if you have Democrats that win the House, the Senate, and the White House, they may do that. And then they can put, you know, six more justices that are along party lines on the court and have liberals now to balance it out or to have a majority. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see court packing. We've had that in history in the past, and it's not good. So those are more my concerns about hurting the institution. Um, and I know that my my liberal friends will be very upset with me because they're very passionate about this Amy Coney Barrett and, and, and in opposition to her. But that's OK. We can agree to disagree on that. But don't worry. We will not turn into Gilead. I assure you. Well, at least not because of her. So um, so but it's a done deal for the most part. There's no way procedurally really to stop this. So um just remember that elections have consequences. So enough about that. Um, the debate. Well, it was a shit show for sure. I'm not the only one who said it. Everyone who in the mainstream media pretty much agreed that it was just an ugly moment for American history. Um, no presidential debate has ever devolved into the type of um, unruly, just interrupting, Donald Trump was was the problem. I mean, did Joe Biden interrupt a little bit here and there? Yes, but he had no choice. He didn't go into the debate with that strategy. That wasn't his intent, but he had no choice. You know, he I think when he was telling when he told Donald Trump to shut up, <laughs> you know, is that very presidential? Well, no, not really. But you're not dealing with a president. You're dealing with a freaking child. You know, you're dealing with an obnoxious out of control, undisciplined child in Donald Trump. And Biden finally just lost it and was like, well, you shut up, shush. Because he really couldn't get to more than two lines out before Trump would interrupt him constantly. It, you know, he could have said a lot worse. Uh, I wasn't happy when he called him a clown. Um, you know, when you start getting into name calling, it looks a little, a little nanny, nanny, poo, poo. Well, you're this, you're that. But I, but, but I just think it was out of frustration for Joe Biden, you know, um, and who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? 
Who wouldn't be if you, if you were faced with that barrage of nonsense for, for an hour and a half? Jeez. The point of a, of a debate is to inform the public so that the citizens can make a decision on who to vote for, you know, temperament, policy prescriptions, solutions, your record. Um, I mean, come on. We, didn't, we hardly got any of that because of Donald Trump's behavior. So, um, you know, Chris Wallace, listen, I like Chris Wallace. He's an excellent journalist and he's one of the toughest ones out there. I, I mean, did he do a great job? Well, not really. I don't think that he anticipated it would be as bad as it was. And um, I think that he allowed Trump to interrupt Biden way too much. Um, he could not get control back of that debate. He lost it very early. And so, you know, sorry, Chris Wallace, I uh, I know you were dealt a tough hand, but I just think that there were things that he could have done differently. And um, I don't know, the debate, the Presidential Debate Commission, they've already issued guidance saying that they were they are going to change the rules for the next two debates if they even happen. Um, you know, cut the mic or something because the next two debates, the debate moderators, they are not Chris Wallace. I just don't see how if Trump does the same thing again, how they're going to control it without a, a mute button. I really don't. But I guess we'll see. But that was not something. I don't know. That just was it was. Uh, I just don't know how people are still undecided. <laughs> I really don't. After watching that, I mean, the world is laughing at us. And it's, a, it's shameful. What do you tell your kids? You wouldn't allow your children to behave that way. You know, why would you allow your president to? Why would you accept that for a president? Is the question I ask people who make excuses for Donald Trump's behavior. It matters, just like his words matter. And speaking of those words, he said a lot of stuff that was just not true. Not a surprise, of course, because that's all he does is lie. He's a pathological liar. But without relitigating the entire debate, I just want to highlight a couple things. First of all, he kept going after Hunter Biden, which we all knew that he was going to do. The campaign had been telegraphing this. And for over a year and a half now, I have been screaming from the rooftops that the Biden campaign needed to confront Hunter's issues head on, accept them. And the I call it the clear and present danger strategy. If you haven't noticed, if you listen to me often, I make a lot of references to movies and pop culture. Um, I'm a child of the 80s. I love music. I love movies. I love theater. And um, so I always have these little references because of things that remind me. You know, I've talked about the eight mile strategy. I've talked about the Jerry Springerization of politics. And here is what I call the clear and present danger strategy. What is that? If you've ever seen the movie Clear and Present Danger in the 90s with um, Harrison Ford, it's one of my favorite movies in the whole world. I watched it a million times. I've watched it so many times. My husband's like, enough with this movie. Every time it comes on, I watch it. Because it has a couple of lines in it that I that I love. Um, if you've ever seen it, you know, there's a scene there where Harrison Ford is the deputy director of the CIA, and he's in conflict with another one of his CIA counterparts. And they are, they're... Um, they have competing interests with something going on in Colombia. And the other guy, Ritter, he says, you know, you don't have one of these now, do you? When he was talking about a, a letter from the president giving him authorization to do this illegal war in Colombia, drug war. And he goes, I have no recollection, Senator. That's the phrase that you need to remember. He's telling that to Harrison Ford. So the I have no recollection, Senator, is one of the most famous lines from that movie and that people use it oftentimes in congressional testimony or wherever to get away with 
lying. I, I have no recollection because you can't prove whether someone remembers something or not, right? So another part, that's not, the, that's not the reference, but that's just one of my favorite lines. The clear and present danger strategy that I've been saying that, Hunt, uh, that the Biden campaign should use comes from another part of the movie. In the beginning, um, a, an American uh, accountant is murdered, him and his family, by a Colombian drug cartel because he embezzled like $600 million of the money, of the drug cartel's money. And this becomes a big international incident. So Harrison Ford, a CIA guy, goes into the president's office because they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we respond to this and who's going to get the money? And so the guy who was murdered was a very close friend of the president's. They'd known each other for a long time. So some of the advisors said, well, you need to distance yourself from this. And Harrison Ford said, no, you need to lean into it. You need to say, that, you know, yes, he was a friend of mine. He was a lifelong, not only was he a friend, he was a lifelong friend. And that way, people didn't, it didn't look like the U.S. was trying to hide anything. So how does that apply to the Hunter Biden situation? The Biden campaign needed to, as soon as they knew Hunter Biden's past and his flaws and his, you know, questionable behavior with drugs and, you know, some of his business stuff. None of it's been illegal that we know of so far. They should have just embraced it. He should have come out right away. Joe Biden should have said, listen, my son is not running for president. And like many families in this country, my son struggled with substance abuse, with addiction. And he's not proud of that. And he has worked very hard to overcome it. And as a family, we have been supportive. And that would have just put it all out there because there are millions of families that have someone that have that has struggled with addiction or died from an overdose. I mean, we have an opioid addiction problem in this country. People are, are dying of overdoses left and right. So it would have made it relatable. So then Trump and his people would have looked like more jerks and just heartless bastards by constantly going after Hunter Biden. And and but the but the Biden camp wasn't doing that. And then they should have turned it around when it came to his business stuff to say, my my son has done nothing illegal. And, you know, what, let's, let's talk about your kids. Let's talk about, you know, your questionable deals and your the nepotism in the White House and the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've made since they've been in the White House. You know, my son has never worked in the White House. And unlike your sons, my sons actually served in the military. You know, I mean, there were ways to turn it around. But the clear and present danger strategy of leaning into Hunter's problems and making it relatable, I think, would have inoculated a lot of those attacks. Um, it took a while for them to do it, but they finally did it. Biden finally did that when he, you know, struggled to get it out because Trump kept interrupting him. But there was a point in that debate when he went after Hunter and called him a drug addict and a druggie and talked about how he took all this money from this Moscow mayor's wife. And, you know, listen, first of all, a lot of those th accusations have been debunked or they're Russian propaganda and they, they're just not true. You know, there's like a little piece of it that's true, but most of it is bullshit. But when Joe Biden looked at the camera, which he did several times throughout the debate, which I thought was excellent, an excellent tactic, talking to the American people after Trump would be a bully and act stupid and say stupid stuff. Biden would turn directly to the camera and, and talk to the American people, like ignore this fool. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's happening to you. He did that on the issue of COVID when he brought up families that have, you know, missing 
people at their at their kitchen tables because they've died from COVID and because of Trump's lack of leadership on that issue. That was excellent. And he did the same thing when he talked about the economic hardships. He did it again uh, when he talked about the addiction issue. And Joe Biden got passionate and was indignant, and he should have been, about him going after Bo, who is the son who died of cancer and who served honorably in Iraq and was the secret- and was the attorney general of, of um, Delaware. And then he turned about Hunter and said, listen, my, my son has struggled with addiction like millions of others in this country, and he has overcome it, and I am so proud of him. That was fantastic. And I still think that, that they need to lean into it because it just makes Trump and the rest of his people look like the assholes that they are. And Don Jr. really needs not to be calling anyone a crackhead, given how glassy-eyed he has been on many interviews in public. Um, he should probably go to a meeting. Now, another part of the, the debate that was alarming was the entire section about white supremacy and race uh, and law enforcement. Everyone knows I come from a law enforcement family. I'm married to a federal law enforcement officer. I'm very pro-police. However, when the things are wrong and there are problems, I will call it out. And there is a problem. And I've got to tell you that I'm not demonizing all law enforcement officers, but there are problems within our criminal justice system and in police departments across the country of systemic racism and police brutality that needs to be addressed. It does. Police officers will tell you that. Not the, It's not the majority of them. It's not. And they are, most of them are good and decent people that get up every day to protect and serve and do their jobs well. But for the ones that aren't and the departments that don't take care of this, they need to be called out and reformed, period. Trump's law and order message is just a wink and a nod to scare people and he's activating these crazy militia people and these white supremacists, these white nationalists, these far right wing domestic terror groups that are out there. He's activating them. And he did it again during the debate where you had tens of millions of people watching around the world. Donald Trump refused to denounce white supremacy. This whole thing about, oh, he did three times. He said, sure, when Chris Wallace asked him. No, he was being intransigent at that point you know he never the words i do not support white supremacy or i denounce their actions i denounce the violence of these right-wing groups these militias have no business out there being vigilantes in our streets that's what our law enforcement is for he wasn't he wasn't unequivocal he wasn't and he's done this before he's been he's been ambiguous before because he likes these people they are his people remember this is the guy that is in love with Kim Jong-un because he likes him. He's This is the guy who cozies up to Putin because he likes him, okay? He has no problem palling around with murderous dictators. Why is anyone surprised that he will not denounce white supremacists and white nationalists and these right-wing militia groups? But here's the problem. These people are lunatics and they have a penchant for violence. I've been doing some research on this because it's been percolating now. Um, they've been out there and in 2009, Department of Homeland Security came out with a with a report about right-wing uh, extremist groups being the number one domestic terror threat. That was buried and uh, because the Republicans had a freak out, I remember, saying that, oh, they're just trying to distract from the Islamic terrorist threat. Turns out that that's, that was wrong. 
it is real. It's been going on. It's been in the shadows. And now it's not in the shadows anymore. Since Donald Trump, these people feel like they have a colleague. They have a comrade in the White House. And apparently they do. From Charlottesville on down, this guy has never fully condemned these bastards. And they're dangerous. The FBI director has said so. The Department of Homeland Security has tried to warn. If you listened to my last podcast, you, you heard from Miles Taylor, who was the chief of staff over there at Homeland Security. And he talked about some of the illegal things. And he told me, also on uh, Lincoln Project TV, we have a new show called The Breakdown on the Lincoln Project YouTube page that I co-host with Rick Wilson. We had Miles Taylor on there where he talked about they tried to warn the White House about this problem and they didn't want to hear it. So they've done really nothing about this. Meanwhile, local police departments don't have the resources they need for counterintelligence and to monitor these crazies. And they are popping up in large numbers all across the country. Who are some of these groups? The Boogaloo Movement. If you, and you can look them up. The Boogaloo Movement, their goal is to incite a civil war in this country. Um, on Martin Luther King Day this year, down in Richmond, Virginia, there was a rally. And the FBI arrested a bunch of these Boogaloo Movement guys right beforehand because they were planning on inciting violence so that they could spark a civil war. Okay? Look them up. The Boogaloo Movement. You have the Three Percenters, another militia group. You have these guys called the Oath Keepers. The Atlantic, uh, the Atlantic Magazine. They are excellent. They do really great long-form pieces. The Atlantic Magazine did a piece on, on the Oath Keepers and how they're recruiting an alarming amount of law enforcement and military guys, people who are trained. This is scary, okay? And then you have the Proud Boys. Now, the Proud Boys, they're another group of these, these losers, okay, that have been running around inciting violence as a counter to Antifa. And, you know, it was, our, it was FBI director... Christopher Ray, who said that Antifa is not an organization, it's an ideology, okay? Whereas these other groups, they're organized. These right-wing militia groups, they're organized. And they pose a threat. And they're violent. The Proud Boys, they've been, you know, walking through towns and with their guns slung over their, their wannabe shoulders, intimidating and getting into fights with people and starting a problem. They were there down in Charlottesville as well. Okay, they're bad news. And Donald Trump refused to denounce them. He tried to act like he didn't know who they were, but that's bullshit, right? He does that all the time. He didn't know who David Duke was. He doesn't know who anybody is. I don't know who that is. You know, he tried to almost claim he didn't know who Michael Cohen was. That's what he does. But that's bullshit. He knows exactly who they are. And the Proud Boys, they're bad news too. And now they feel activated because Donald Trump said, stand back and stand by. They made a patch before the lights were turned off after the debate, they had a patch online to sell as part of a recruitment tool for them. These people are activated because of Donald Trump. This is dangerous. We've got to pay attention to them and make sure that they don't get a foothold. I've been warning about this. I've been fearing that there could be violence in the streets because of Donald Trump and the people that he is giving license to do this to. And his response at the debate was just further evidence that he doesn't give a shit and he will wreak all kinds of havoc 
do anything he needs to do to intimidate people and to try to undermine this election. It's coming from so many directions. It really is. Um, so we need to pay attention to that. And something else that's coming from a lot of different directions where, you know, this idea that the election is not secure or that the Russians are meddling again, and they are, they are, but it's in different ways. And that's why I felt that it was so important to bring on someone who has researched this and written a really excellent comprehensive book about it and with historical reference to um, the idea of electoral interference, both good and bad. Because, you know, the U.S. was part of that, too. But we were doing it for good. <laughs> we have different goals than the Russians and the KGB. So on that note, uh, I want to bring in this week's guest on Honestly Speaking, author, historian, foreign policy expert, David Scheinberg. The timing of... This interview with my next guest could not have come at a better time. Um, we are facing an existential threat to our democracy and to one of our most precious uh, institutions, which is election security. And my next guest, David Scheimer, has written an, an amazing book that really puts the election, election interference, the role of Russia into perspective. Um, David is a global fellow at the Wilson Center. He's an associate fellow at Yale. He's a historian and a foreign policy expert and author of the new book, Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference. David Scheimer, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Pleased to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation for several weeks, and um, I'm glad that, you know, you've been a busy guy, rightfully so, given the, the subject matter of your book and the um, relevance to what we're facing now. And so I've been really looking forward to our conversation. And, and as I said in your intro, the, the timing couldn't have been uh, more perfect. We just had a presidential debate, the first presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And... Um, I watched that spectacle. It was more of a spectacle than a, than a debate and felt very sad for our country. Um, I remember when I was nine years old, uh, I was in fourth grade in 1984, and that was the year Geraldine Ferraro was nominated as our first female vice presidential candidate. And I was very excited to play her in a mock debate in my fourth grade class. And I looked, that was my first real introduction into politics. And I look at the spectacle we saw during this first debate and just felt very sad for our country and very sad for the other nine and 10 year olds and, and children who are looking at the political climate we're in and looking at the behavior of the president of the United States. And this is their first introduction to American politics. It, it made me sad. And um, I'd be curious to hear what your perspective was on that debate, um, especially coming from the perspective of a historian who specializes in um, covert interference into our elections. What were your thoughts? So I felt I felt similarly. I would say the thing that was most on my mind is this sustained effort by the president to undermine confidence in the legitimacy of the election itself. 
And that's on my mind for two reasons. The first is, as you said, that that is not historically novel. It's only historically novel in the American experience. But in global history, there is a substantial history of incumbents insisting that they won elections that they really lost, insisting that the polls can't be trusted. And all that does is degrade the ability of a democracy to have a process of succession because our process of succession is, of course, our free and fair elections. They provide for a future. They provide for progress. They provide for order. And if you undermine our, our, our functionality in seeking to hold that process, you're undermining uh, the, the, the very functioning of our state um, as, as a, a democracy. The second reason it's on my mind is because it's what our adversaries want for us. I think that there is a bit of a misconception in part around 2016 for example, the idea that Russia was just after helping Donald Trump and hurting Hillary Clinton. That's true, but they also, their predominant objective was to undermine our democracy. That's right. You know, to sabotage our democratic processes and to show the world that the democratic model is flawed, unenviable, and doesn't actually work. And so I am frustrated, alarmed, um, and continually astounded that we ourselves are, are are doing that work for Russia. You know, Russia is not, it, it's, it's the president who's saying this is a rigged election, it can't be trusted. And so that just plays right into our adversaries' hands and the real loser here is just American democracy. Uh, indeed. And throughout your book, you talk about that and you really bring in the historical perspective of um, kind of how we got here as far as the, the Russians' efforts to do it. Um, on page 240 of your book, you say that a democracy is most likely to fall, quoting the historian Tony uh, Judd, um, saying uh, to uh, a democracy is most likely to fall to a corrupted version of itself. Today, American democracy withers from within. Russia is using covert weapons to exacerbate this trend. When you watch the president of the United States out there um, ranting about a rigged election, retweeting falsehoods and misinformation, disinformation, propaganda level um, campaigns through social media. Do you think that he is a co-conspirator in Russians' efforts here? In Russia's efforts here? So, I, 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 I the the answer to that question obviously has been very thoroughly investigated. What I what I would say is that what Russia's doing, what the Russian tradition is, is to identify weaknesses and vulnerabilities and to exploit them. I was struck for my book, I interviewed more than 130 officials about the history of foreign election interference, including eight former CIA directors, um, a former US president and a former KGB general. And what that former KGB general emphasized to me when I spent about half a day with him was that the goal of Soviet intelligence was to identify the things about American society that were already not working, where Americans were already feuding with one another, and to blow them up, to pour gasoline on them. And so it should be unsurprising to us that right now there are reports that Russia is, A, amplifying Donald Trump's allegations of, of voter fraud with mail-in ballots, B, that Russia is amplifying Donald Trump's allegations that his opponent um, has mental health deficiencies. Um, that That is the, the oldest trick in the Russian toolkit, which is to take messaging that already exists 
that plays to its objectives and then to spread it as widely as possible. So I would say that absolutely Donald Trump's rhetoric plays into Russia's hands. And I think that we should be clear eyed about that that overlap um, in aims because Donald Trump wants to win. Russia wants Donald Trump to win. Donald Trump wants is willing to question the validity of our democratic processes. And Russia wants, above all, to tear down our democratic system. So so I, I, I think there, the FBI director has already said, uh, you know, under oath that Russia is very actively interfering in this election in order to advantage um, President Trump. And I see no reason why that won't continue over the next five weeks. You know, it's remarkable and it really sends chills down my spine to know that the the cage like the, the the former KGB general that you spoke to is basically saying like yeah this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it uh, and we're watching it play out every single day our own intelligence community has been very clear eyed about this and and our own FBI director appointed by Donald Trump by the way has also been unequivocal about this yet Trump refuses to acknowledge it refuses to do anything about it, really. Um, and here we are only a few weeks away from from the election. What are some of the, in your book you talk about this, but, um, and you know, we're, we're gonna hit some of the highlights, but what are some of the tools that the Russians are using? What What is it that they're doing that's unique to Russia's capabilities that they've adapted to kind of exploit, like you said, they, they have exploited all existing divisions. That's one of their one of their their tactics it's you know we're kind of doing their work for them they just amplify it um, but what are some of those tools that are unique to the situation now that they didn't deploy in years past sure and and, and for context um i would just say in brief what the book does what my book rig does is is it restores history to this very subject to covert electoral interference mm -hmm. to show how America and the Soviet Union interfered in elections all over the world during the Cold War, how Vladimir Putin's Russia is interfering in elections all over the world in the 21st century right now, and only then how Russia has deployed these weapons against America um, with such wide reach and potential impact. And in terms of what Russia is doing now as compared to 2016, I think you're seeing a natural extension, not only of 2016, but of what came before even then. Um, the tradition of covert electoral interference is to do one of two things. It's either to manipulate public opinion or it's to manipulate actual voting systems, actual election infrastructure. In 2016, Russia went down both of those lanes. They spread massive amounts of propaganda across social media and stolen released sensitive emails to manipulate American voters. They also systemically targeted our election systems, which as I detail in the book was what captivated the Obama team in the summer and fall of 16, that Russia intended to launch an actual cyber attack against our election infrastructure. So what do we actually know now, four years later, about what Russia is doing at this present moment? We know that yet again, Microsoft has announced that Russian military intelligence is targeting the email accounts of hundreds of American political figures. Presumably, if they acquired them, they would release them through a third party as they did four years ago. Secondly, we've seen Facebook and Twitter launch takedowns of covert networks of Russian accounts. And if history is any guide, what you see in real time is just the tip of the iceberg of covert operations. So what Facebook and Twitter have found so far, it's great that they've been transparent. I would expect there to be much more um, to be uncovered. And I would say third, in terms of what's new, I would be watching very carefully for how Russia acts to delegitimize this election itself. 
because I think unlike 16, unlike the many Cold War era elections that the KGB interfered in in the United States, there's an unprecedented degree of doubt right now over whether America will be able to hold a stable and legitimate election come November. And for Russia, based on what that KGB general said to me, based on the KGB archives I went through, that pre-existing vulnerability is fertile ground to sow chaos, sow disorder, sow distrust by just spreading disinformation about rigged polling places or by trying to sabotage um, election systems in select locations just to provide sufficient chaos to throw the outcome into doubt and to provide the president with fodder to say the result was illegitimate. So I would say that we are um, as vulnerable as we've ever been to that type of attack that could unfold either on election day or in its immediate aftermath in order to make the country question whether the outcome of the election should actually be deemed trustworthy um, and reliable or not. And obviously the president would prefer the latter outcome. You know, that is, um, I don't know that the American people recognize how dangerous the, the game that Donald Trump is playing really is and how he's playing right into the Russians' operations here. Um, I, you know, I, I worked for Congressman Rohrabacher before he went completely off the deep end with his Russia stuff. And um, at, at the time, you know he was he was of the of the mindset that well we can we need to to have Russia as our ally to help us fight the war on terror he was you know that was his thought process i left in 2013 and what happened after that i can't take any responsibility for but when i worked for him i became you know a lot more well versed in some of the things that russia was doing and coming from a cold war warrior like he was working for reagan and that era and i learned about the uh, the Soviet use of reflexive control theory, which um, basically is doing what we're talking about. It's using propaganda, using manipulating information to manipulate and influence behavior. And in your book, you talk about how the the Russians went from the Soviets co- focused on getting communists elected and, and spreading communism. And they've shifted focus somewhat now to undermining democracy and how and that's that's been Putin's goal and that America has now been the most fertile ground to do it, that they've done this in many other countries where they've tried to sow this type of dissension and division. But now um because of the nature of our of our democracy, that America is the most vulnerable at that. Is that an accurate depiction of of what you write about? So I think that's absolutely right. I think there's been a huge strategic shift um, in terms of Soviet and now Russian election interference, because from the days of Vladimir Lenin in 1919 through the Cold War, the Soviet objective, as you said, was to spread an ideology, communism, supporting leftist candidates which naturally constrained its operations for the most part to supporting a select group of people. Whereas now Putin has abandoned the ideological constraints of his predecessors. He believes that he's locked in a power struggle, not an ideological struggle with the West, and that in this zero-sum world that he believes he lives in, the best way to enhance Russia's relative power is to damage or decrease America's standing and the standing of its democratic allies. So he's launched a global campaign of election interference in support of authoritarian-minded and divisive candidates. I was struck in my interviews that I did across Europe and elsewhere that other democracies are under siege too. I talked to the president of Montenegro, whom Russian intelligence tried to assassinate. 
um, who told me that he stands alone. His democracy is, has no support from, from its peer allies in seeking to defend its electoral sovereignty. The same one for the former president of Colombia, who told me that he was getting reports of Russian interference in Colombia's 2018 election across social media to sow discord and divide. The same story. What Russia's trying to do is to divide the citizens of democracies from one another, to divide democracies from one another, to support candidates who will move toward nationalist, exclusive, um, divisive policies that will decrease, for example, America's ability to lead, decrease America's societal cohesion, make other European and other democracies um, detached from one another and therefore more vulnerable to Russian influence um, and sabotage, and in that process, to spread Russia's new authoritarian model at the expense of the democratic model at the expense of the international institutions, for example, that have both underpinned American power in the world and have been a real source of security for the democracies of the world over the past 70 or so years. So Vladimir Putin has a vision here. It's harder to identify than the Soviet mission, which was just to support communists, but it does exist and it's being systemically executed. And so far, America has failed to launch a comprehensive policy response to not only defend its own elections, but to also defend its allies. Right. Which is um, which is an important point that I think gets lost in this a lot because Donald Trump has just abandoned our our allies. Our strategic alliances have been frayed and undermined much to the delight of Vladimir Putin. Um, You know, his goal is to reestablish the Soviet empire and dominance, um, particularly in Europe. And Donald Trump is serving this up to him on a silver platter by abandoning one of the most uh, one of the hallmark um, parts of, of uh, what, what makes America great and a superpower and that shining city on the hill, which is our support and an example of a strong democracy. It's it's alarming how quickly America is losing her influence um, in, in four years, just a simple four years of, of Donald Trump. Some would argue that Obama um, wasn't helpful either in foreign in foreign policy positions, but nothing like this at all. That's a different discussion. Um, but talking about failures uh, to to combat this, um, and speaking of Obama, in your book you have uh, an interesting anecdote about the summer of 2016, which you referenced a few minutes ago, um, when the Obama administration was pretty much fully aware at that point of the extent of what Russia was doing and that this was a problem and what the hell were they going to do about it? And you talk about the options that were on the table and none of them were were good. (laughs) Uh, And and the, the decision to retaliate against Putin or not at that point during the election was a subject of much consternation and back and forth. And you talk about um, an anecdote where Lisa Monaco, who was President Obama's Homeland Security Advisor at the time, where she said that um, she quotes, she's quoted as saying, Obama said, you fuck with us and we'll take you down. (laughs) Um, This was a a message delivered to Putin and others in response to what we were seeing in the state systems. That was our focus. Um, that the at the time, the focus of the Obama administration was they were worried that the Russians were getting into individual state election data systems, and they did not know how much damage they could do with that. And I don't know that a lot of people realize this. It was in the Mueller report, and most people didn't read it. But they the Russians actually did penetrate election systems in, in several states. And this was this horrified 
the Obama administration. Um, do you think their their response was the right one? And explain a little bit about what the Russians did as far as actually getting into state election systems and why that was so alarming. Absolutely. Um, and that was a, a quote that really stuck out to me regarding um, me too. <laughs> to, to Putin and and in my, a minor point, but just because, you know, I obviously don't want any confusion. It was a different C- senior official. It wasn't wasn't Lisa Monica, which is not a big deal at all. But oh, yeah, probably important to say. Sure, sure. Um, and in terms of the understanding of 2016, I think the only way to understand what Obama actually went through, and I and I really tried to get at that because I think it's been so overlooked by all of the craziness of our moment today. So I interviewed 26 of his senior advisors, Susan Rice, Lisa Monaco, John Brennan, Jim Clapper, all of those folks to try to recreate this story. And what I found is that you have to divide Obama's response along two tracks that I'd mentioned earlier. The first was Russia's efforts to manipulate American voters, which took those two forms, the stolen emails and the social media manipulation. In the summer, they knew that Russia was behind the email releases. The social media manipulation was much more poorly understood. But along that second track, there were ceaseless reports, as the White House cybersecurity coordinator put it to me, of Russian scans, probes, and penetrations of voting systems, voter databases across the country. And the focus, the imperative in the White House was to prevent Russia from actually um, affecting ballots or affecting those systems. So every move that President Obama made in the summer and fall was around preventing that outcome. Some advisors, his Russia team said, we should hit Putin in August in order to deter further interference, but a calculation was made that that could actually provoke Putin into escalating toward disrupting the voting process and that it was better to hold off on retaliating so long as Putin didn't cross this so-called red line toward going from manipulating people to manipulating our systems. This was what captivated the Obama team in the summer and fall to the point where on election day itself, the White House and DHS, as I reveal in the book, were secretly running crisis teams bracing for Russia to sabotage um, our infrastructure and cause chaos at polling places. So in hindsight, um, that attack never manifested itself, but Donald Trump won and 100 million Americans or more than that were reached by Russian propaganda on social media, and those stolen emails overtook uh, much of our information environment. So I think that the lesson from that is that to defend an election is to defend against both forms of covert electoral interference. You have to defend against efforts to manipulate our systems, of course, but you also have to defend against efforts to manipulate public opinion. And moving forward, our policy response has to be operating along both of those tracks, because in many ways, the tradition here is to manipulate public opinion. There are only rare instances where ballots can really be affected at scale. This this game is much more about molding minds, as America should well know, because in the 20th century, the CIA was a part of that game. That's right. And you um, outline in uh, a couple chapters in your book about that, uh, where how the U.S., you know, we've we've done this, too, um, not with the same um, goal as the KGB. But, you know, there were there was competition between the CIA and the KGB. Uh, over um, meddling, if you want to use that term, in different places across the world. And for us, it was really more to promote democracy and and push back uh, uh, communism, the expansion of communism and authoritarianism. And it was a different goal for for the KGB. And uh, just to just to button up your your story about the summer of 2016 and going into the election of 2016, 
I had no idea, and I don't think a lot of a lot of Americans did at all. It's the first I'm hearing of it that the Obama administration literally had response teams, cyber response teams from all the respective agencies set up and ready to go in case there was a mass attack on our actual elections on election day. That was that was news to me. And I kind of feel actually I'm, I actually feel better that they were at least prepared for that. But unfortunately, it was at the expense of the changing minds part of the covert operation. Exactly. And I think that that those teams speak to the focus of the White House at the time um, and to the expectation that Russia would seek to delegitimize um, a Clinton victory by sowing chaos and allowing Trump, as we've now seen four years later, um, to allege, and as he did four years ago, that the vote was rigged and that it couldn't be trusted. And I think it's a real myth that this is all about, as I said, Trump and Clinton, because something history reveals and that I think is really important is that this is not a partisan issue. The KGB interfered in America's elections in 1960 and 68 to go after Richard Nixon, a Republican. The KGB interfered in our 76 and 84 elections to go after Ronald Reagan, a Republican. It just so happens that today Russia is helping a Republican, but what Russia is after is Russia's interests, which are to choose our leaders for us, to sabotage our democracy, and to undermine the the very legitimacy of the democratic model as a legitimate form of governance. And that should offend and alarm all Americans, regardless of their party loyalties. And it showed out by the 2016 case, where Russia started that operation in 2014 before Donald Trump had even announced. Russia had plans, as I detail in the book, to continue undermining a Clinton administration. So the threat of Russian interference proceeded and will continue after Donald Trump's political career ends. And it falls on us as a democracy to defend our own sovereignty and to help our allies do the same. And until we do that, it's going to be open season in terms of trying to degrade, disrupt, and discredit um, our democratic processes, which I believe in very strongly um, and I believe are to the benefit of of all Americans when they are conducted um, without obstruction, whether from domestic or foreign sources. Absolutely, which is why we all are doing what we're doing and making sure that the citizenry is informed of what's happening because this all matters. It matters. And I just don't know. I don't know um, how much louder we can sound the alarms here you know, you're part of a, a whole cottage industry of historians and, and foreign policy experts, uh, you know, cybersecurity experts, intelligence experts who have been screaming from the rooftops about what Russia is doing. And yet you look at polls and you have, uh, you know, a, a larger percentage of Americans that I'm comfortable with that seem to just shrug this off. And all of a sudden now, you know, oh, well, Putin's great. Russia's great. Who cares? No, this is, you know, I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up with, you know, Rocky and, and you know, fighting the Russians. <laughs> like, you know, that, that, that whole Cold War, you know, rah-rah America. And to see what, where we're at now, it's like falling down the rabbit hole. It's, it's the world turns upside down. It's, um, this is, uh, like I said, falling right into what Putin wants. I, I joke oftentimes every time Donald Trump does something, uh, like he did during the debate or every time he he does something that mirrors Russian disinformation that that Putin is just sitting there in the Kremlin taking shots of vodka laughing his ass off about how easy this is. <laughs> I don't think he ever expected it would be this this easy. Um, well, and, and I think ahead. and I think a point there that's really that's that's essential that you raise is that 
Americans, maybe a privilege of our history is that we haven't had to encounter these difficulties before in a really meaningful way. We haven't had a president before say, if I lose, that means the election was rigged. But I think if you look at other countries like Ukraine or Georgia or Belarus or Serbia, there have been these experiences before. And I also think the experiences, both of those countries and of the history here in general, does provide a degree of reassurance because, for example, in Serbia in 2000, the incumbent tried to say he won an election he really lost. There was then a widely spread peaceful movement to call on him to concede. He conceded and there was a transition of power. I think that in the broader history of covert electoral interference, democracies that have been under siege before, whether Japan or Italy or France or elsewhere, remain democracies today. None of this means that our democratic system is doomed to collapse. It just means that, as you said, citizens have to be invested. And as so many folks like you and others are, are putting in so much amazing work to try to get people to be more invested um, in saying, you know, th that our democracy is something that we actually value and are willing to do the hard work of maintaining. And I think there's a moment right now where that will take more work than it did, for example, 12 years ago when John McCain and Barack Obama were running against one another um, to 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 champions of American democracy. We're in a different moment right now. But but the outcome of that moment, as as you said, is is by no means preordained. That is the understatement of the year, David. <laughs> um, for sure. You know, we are definitely in a different moment and a moment of great cause of and concern that without the diligence of the American people, um, making sure that our elected officials are held accountable for their negligence and incompetence um, and lack of protecting us, not only from um, threats foreign, but also domestic, uh, it, it it really will shape the future of this country and the future of our democracy and whether it can withstand that. I'm glad to hear, you know, that you give some hope that we can make it through this. Um, but it is, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I wonder, which is why it's so important that we continue to have these conversations uh, as in the lead up to the election and after, because it, it doesn't end there. You know, the Russians are not going to just go, oh, oh, well, if, you know, if Donald Trump loses, they're not going to just pack up and go home. They'll try something else because they're they're patient and unrelenting. Um, I wanted to uh, to ask you just to give uh, a historical example, because I know you talk about Italy and the election of 1948, which was something that uh, where the U.S. was involved um, and what we did there. Um, I, I interviewed um, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat a couple of weeks ago and uh, talking about the authoritarian playbook and, and what we see and how uh, Hitler admired Mussolini. And um, she's, you know, she talks a lot about Italy and Mussolini and fascism there and the propaganda and his, his um, manipulation of media and how to use that and how Hitler admired that. And we see a lot of the same, and I hate to say this, but it's true, uh, same tactics, same, um, you know, propaganda tactics that were used at that time, which makes it also historically significant what we're doing. But can you talk a little bit about what the U.S. did in 1948 and what the result was and why you often reference that? You do in your book, you've tweeted about it. Why was the election in Italy in 1848 significant? So the Italian election um, of 1948 was significant in a whole bunch of different different ways. It was significant 
from a historical point of view because it was the time, the moment when the CIA got in the game of American election interference, where the Soviets had been interfering in elections for about three decades by that point, including across Eastern Europe very aggressively um, in the immediate post-war period. And that was when Harry Truman, the American president, decided to respond to Soviet election interference with, with American election interference. He authorized the CIA to engage in covert action formally for the first time with the express purpose of interfering in that Italian election. So the starting point of CIA covert action was actually electoral interference. And the CIA then ran a sprawling operation um, designed to manipulate um, Italian voters um, through either just physical pieces of propaganda or orchestrated grassroots initiatives or actually bankrolling the preferred centrist campaign. And when that campaign emerged as victorious, um, there was a presumption inside the CIA that they had made the difference, even though they couldn't prove it. Um, and that inspired a generation of CIA operations to interfere in elections in competition with the KGB. And something that was very interesting about that election that relates very, very much to what we're talking about is that American engagement aside, because the CIA's hand was hidden then, that election had the stakes and was covered as such as being about whether Italy would be a democracy or not. Um, and the whole country was engaged in this vote. The Vatican was deeply engaged in the election um, and rescheduled services so that its members would be able to, to vote, for instance. And in the end, over 90 percent of eligible voters in Italy casted their ballots and the centrist candidates won by an extraordinarily large margin that prevented the communists, as had been predicted and it's impossible to know what they had intended if the margin had been closer, but it made it impossible for the communists to stage a credible challenge to the election outcome. That was the case in Italy. It's been the case in other pivotal elections, such as in Chile, or also, as I mentioned, in Serbia, where a resounding result took out the, the wind of the sails of those who would have wanted to, to challenge that outcome, which is why I think you've seen a lot of posts and a lot of rhetoric around that today, the idea that if there is a decisive outcome in the 2020 election, it will be much more difficult for that election to be to be tarred as illegitimate. That was true in 1948. I believe it would be true in 2020. Um, but of course, that requires, um, as you said, the, the widespread engagement um, of the populace in terms of voting in perhaps larger numbers than is usual, because the stakes of this election, regardless of which candidate you support, are so obviously higher than than they have been in normal elections. Absolutely. And if only America could have 90 plus percent uh, voter participation, that would be wonderful. And it's um, it's unfortunate that we see uh, a president and an entire party. I mean, I, I was a Republican for over 20 years. And to see the party actively engaging in voter suppression to try to get less people to vote and make it more difficult is so anathema to what we claim to believe as as conservatives and as Americans, never mind the, the partisan affiliation. It just it feels very un-American to do that. Um, particularly when you look at history and how important free and fair elections have been to the health of of democracies. It's um, it's disconcerting, to, to say the least. Uh, just really quick, one more point about Italy. Um, I'm part Italian. I got married in Italy in Sicily. I have an authentic Italian marriage certificate. The bureaucracy to get that is unbelievable. <laughs> Anyone who's ever dealt with Italian government bureaucracy will chuckle at that comment, but it was worth it. Um, and I'm looking at what's going on in Italy right now, and we see a, I would think, an alarming reemergence of some of those right-wing um, fascist type of 
of ideologies creeping back up in Italy. Do you, are you concerned a bit about what's happening over there with the emergence of the Five Star Party and and what's going on in Italy as well? So I think I, I, I think I am. And I would say that I'm concerned not just about Italy, but I'm concerned about Germany. I'm concerned about France. I'm concerned about Hungary, Poland, all sorts of countries where you're seeing um, either fringe parties or far right parties emerge um, and gain in traction um, in this new divisive moment we find ourselves in globally, um, where it's not just about Russia's support um, for divisive and authoritarian minded candidates, but also an appetite domestically for such candidates. Right. Um, I think that we've exited um, or are in the process. I, I think we have exited that moment of, oh, the democratic model um, is just going to win out that we saw in the 90s and the early 2000s. And I think that that competition between democratic candidates and authoritarian minded candidates, autocrat minded candidates, um, or just models um, persists. Um, and the notion or inevitability is democracy is being sort of the end all be all is, is, is certainly no longer so. Um, and I think there should be a great degree of humility um, in democracies around the world about the stability um, and furtherance of those of those forms of governance, because I think Americans should know that better than anyone. I think that people would most citizens would never have thought that our democracy could be so easily degraded or manipulated um, 10 years ago, as, as, as I think those people would say would say today. Um, and I think it just goes to show that even the most well-developed, well-established democratic systems require the buy-in and goodwill and good faith of not only its citizens, but of its political figures. Um, and I think that that is a problem that is being experienced by democracies on a global basis. Um, and that is a source of alarm for me and is part of why I wrote this book and why I urge in my conclusion that we should be taking steps um, very actively to shore up not only our democratic system, but to provide that same level of support to countries like Italy or Spain or Germ or France or Hungary or Poland or wherever else um, in order to try to push back against this wave um, of authoritarian-minded behavior that counteracts both America's interests and its values. That's right. That's why picking whoever our next president is matters so much because the president of the United States has so much influence over our foreign policy and what the country represents. When we have someone who has been actively neglecting um, those American ideals that we used to espouse, you know, years ago, um, with those, with our allies and in and speaking out against human rights violations and, you know, uh, violations of press freedoms and things across the world, like that used to be everyone, people would turn to the United States to, to see where, where, where do we stand, you know, and, you know, the United, you could always count on the United States to do the right thing. And you can't say that anymore. You just can't. And um, I think the, the foreign policy implications of the election are definitely drowned out by all the chaos and crazy shit that happens every day with Donald Trump. But it is equally as significant as far as our standing in the world. Um, I recently narrated a documentary called Dismantling Democracy, and it's a three part documentary that talks about this. Um, again, uh, perfectly timed because uh, it, it, it people just need to know the historical context. It's not just here. It is global and it needs to be uh, stopped head on. Um, before we close, I just wanted to uh, kind of give the American people and people who are listening 
um, some hope and some instruction on what to do, because I'm sure people are listening to this going WTF, like, okay, what can I do in my small town in Ohio or Wisconsin or, you know, Arizona or Florida in these swing battleground states where they are being inundated with all kinds of election information, disinformation and attempts to 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 to, to sow chaos. Um, you and my good friend Asha Rangappa recently wrote an election, a citizen's guide to 2020 electoral interference for JustSecurity.org. And uh, folks can can go and, and read that whole thing because it's very instructive. But um, just some just give some some hope to the voters and the listeners of, you know, what what can they look for? What can they do? And can they have faith in our upcoming presidential election? So I think you can have faith in the upcoming election. I think that a real um, plus right now is that America's electoral administration is decentralized, states and localities, not the White House control how elections are run. Um, and so I think that the presumption should be that things will proceed in a legitimate manner. With that said, I think that nothing should be taken for granted. I think that all citizens, the most basic thing they can do is not only to vote, um, but also to encourage their loved ones, their friends to vote, um, because something history instructs, again, is that in pivotal and potentially contested elections, when there's overwhelming turnout for, for a particular side, it becomes much more difficult for the loser or for foreigners to sow doubt about the outcome. So that's that's the baseline. And I think that if there are unexpected disruptions, um, whether in the lead up to voting or during the voting process itself, something that history also reveals is that the best thing to do is to remain calm because the goal of disinformation or of sabotaging of particular polling places in a hypothetical world would be most likely to just um, undermine confidence in the vote and to generate panic and fear. So if we resist that temptation, we're actually defending ourselves against both domestic and foreign efforts to undermine the legitimacy of the vote and confidence in the vote. And I think that through election day, that's sort of the best we can do. It's about turning out and it's about having faith and being calm, but being ready also to demand that our democratic processes be respected um, in a peaceful manner. And I think in the longer term, um, whether it's in 21 or 25, when there is a new president, there should be a broad, comprehensive whole of nation effort um, with both domestic and foreign policy components to shore up our electoral sovereignty and to stand up against those who would violate it overseas. And I think that in the short term, we, we need a, we're kind of managing this problem, but something that I really hope folks remember moving forward, as you said, is this threat won't dissipate um, if, if, if the president were to lose and it's on us and it will be on us as a democracy and as a, as a, as a citizenry, um, to continue to uphold our democratic system and to continue to buy into it. And so I hope that folks listening to this will make sure that they vote, will make sure that they're pushing, um, their circles to vote, um, will be actively engaged in this, in this campaign. Um, and I, and by that, I mean, our democratic process generally, um, and will not, let others manipulate them, but rather will find fact-based information and, and, and execute your own analysis rather than letting, whether it be cable news or Twitter accounts, um, throw you into, into upheaval and alarm when, in fact, that is the goal of, of the very people who are seeking to degrade our demo democracy. 
Amen, David Scheimer. Um, the warning here is be very careful of what you're forwarding and reading on Facebook and Twitter and social media. This is rich, fertile ground for the Russians to continue to manipulate information and manipulate um, the American citizenry. And I cannot, I will continue to sound that alarm on being careful about what you read and forward and what you find on on social media versus reputable uh, news sources. David Scheimer, thank you so much. He is the author of the book Rigged America, Russia, one and 100 years of covert electoral interference. It is out now. It's a fantastic read and you will be smarter and more informed um, for reading it. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining me and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you again. Um, and thank you very much for having me and for all that you're doing. Again, another big thank you to David Scheimer for joining me on this week's edition of the podcast. Check out his book, Rigged. And um, before I go, I just wanted to do a little public service announcement about voting integrity and um, some resources for folks who, uh, you know, if they want to become a poll watcher or if they um, are concerned about, uh, you know, election protection, um, there's an organization called vote411.org. Um, it's a website where you can get information from the League of Women Voters, which is nonpartisan. Um, that's vote11.org. And it gives you personalized voting information. You can see what's on your ballot in your respective state. You can check your voter registration and you can find your vote, uh, your polling place as well if you cho- choose to vote in, in person. That's vote411.org. And then there is a hotline um, where... It's, uh, it's about election protection. It's an election protection coalition that works year-round to ensure that voters have equal opportunity to vote and that their vote counts. And their hotline is 866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866-OUR-VOTE. And you can tw- follow them on Twitter at 866-OUR-VOTE or on Facebook, facebook.com slash 866-OUR-VOTE. Um, and you can find them online, 866hourvote.org. So those are some resources as well um, for you moving forward. Um, Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget to stay safe, wear your mask, and get out there and vote.